Right, good morning. Um, great worship we've had already, and uh, really looking forward to worshipping again and really focusing on Jesus this morning. Um, first of all, just to think about what we've been doing with preaching so far recently. Um, instead of going through a book of the Bible, we have been in really in the last sort of preaching year going through our Vision and Value series, as Ben has been talking about what kind of church we are, but also what kind of church we want to be, what we're aiming for, and what our, our values are. And we've had a couple of little mini-series within that, where uh, John and I have spoken on uh, the Gospel of John and looked at the question of who Jesus is. And then over the summer, we had our little mini-series where we looked at the Lord's Prayer, which actually I've really enjoyed listening to all the other preachers. Uh, that the other guys brought and found it really helpful and really encouraging. And, um, and, then, and then Ben has brought these two great vision preaches on uh, us, encouraging us to be bold, which have been very challenging, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll benefit from that in the weeks ahead. But, I mean, as elders, we felt it was right to break away from teaching through God's word and actually do our vision and values, really set out what kind of church we are. And uh, obviously those values come from God's word. They're inspired by God's word. And they're not something we simply thought, oh, that's a nice idea. But um, now we're going to come back. And we felt we're going to to pick up on the book of Hebrews and systematically preach through that. It's going to be a challenge, but we're going to do that. And I get the privilege of going first. So I'm going to talk to you a bit about the book first and uh, just give you the background. And Hebrews is a very interesting book. First of all, it's just about the only book in the New Testament where we don't know for sure who wrote it. Um, There's a lot of discussion uh, about who could have written it. Some people have suggested Paul, uh, although the style of writing is not really the way that Paul would have written the book. Um, One person who had been sort of seen as the possible author of Hebrews is a guy called Barnabas, who you may have heard of. Um, Barnabas actually was called Joseph. But the apostles gave him a nickname, which was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And one reason why a lot of people think he wrote the book is because he was known as a very encouraging man. Um, some have suggested a guy called Apollos. Some have suggested Luke. And uh, we could spend ages going through all the different arguments and reasons why people think different people wrote it. But we're not going to do that. Um, and I'm not qualified to comment on that anyway. But actually what most theologians and commentators will say about the book of Hebrews is... We don't know who wrote it. So there you go. Um, And it's a very challenging book as well. You know, when we when we looked as as elders at at Hebrews, we kind of went. I tell you, we thought Romans was a tricky book, but Hebrews is probably trickier. And um, it requires a lot of good understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, A lot of what it's to do with is around the book of Leviticus, which is all their law and all about the sacrifices. And there's, there's all sorts of subjects in there which we probably find difficult to preach on. Animal sacrifices, altars, the role of priests and high priests, uh, Moses and this guy called Melchizedek who only appears once in the Old Testament and then pops up again in Hebrews. What is that all about? And um, even those who are really clever and know a lot about the Bible find Hebrews as a very difficult book. Most of the New Testament is written in something, I didn't know this till I did my studying, called Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E, which is basically the Greek that the ordinary people, people like you and I, 
would have spoken. Maybe estuary English is the nearest equivalent. Um, the very simple Greek that everybody could understand, that really was understood right throughout the Roman world. Um, Hebrews was actually, actually written in Greek that was very close to classical Greek, what people would study now. Um, and when it's translated into English, it becomes very sophisticated, very um, complex language. It can be very hard to get to grips with. So there's lots of reasons why perhaps we shouldn't have preached on Hebrews. But actually, there's lots of good reasons as well. It's a great book, and there are a lot of good reasons to study it and for us to preach on it. Um, one of the, you know, there's this fantastic chapter, chapter 11, which is really the great chapter in the Bible on, on faith. And uh, I was saying to Ben on Tuesday, probably my favorite chapter is the therefore chapter that follows that, chapter 12, which is very practical and very um, useful uh, chapter in the Bible. Um, also, it's a great book for shedding light on the Old Testament. For many of us, we don't have a Jewish background, and it's helpful. Um, it helps to show how the New and the Old Testaments actually fit together, and, um, which is really good. But both, the best thing about Hebrews is, is its focus, which is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. And um, it has this great theme about how Jesus is better or superior to any, anything else. And uh, it helps when we, when we look at a book to get into what it's about, to find out why did the person who wrote it write it and who was he writing to? Because then we can, we can then look at it and think, well, how does that apply to me? What does that mean to me? Um, now, there's a few clues in Hebrews about when it was written. First of all, one of the things is they talk a lot about the sacrifices of animals that took place in Jerusalem. And the tone of the letter is very much as if it was actually happening, which would imply that the book was written before AD 70, because unfortunately in AD 70, a rather large number of Romans camped outside Jerusalem and pretty much destroyed everything, including the temple. And um, we also know that, um, I won't read it out, but in Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, um, the writer talks about the suffering that the people he was writing to were actually undergoing at that time. And we know roughly that Nero started persecuting Christians about AD 64. So we know roughly when the book was written and what was going on at that time. So there was, there was out and out persecution of the Christians going on. And um, for the Jewish believers, there was a particular issue, a particular temptation that they faced. Because in Roman law, they had what they called official religions. And if you were in one of those official religions then it was promoted, it was encouraged, and you were protected. And Judaism was actually one of the protected religions. It was a recognized thing. But Christianity was not. It was seen as a sect. It was seen as something out there. And there was no legal or protection at all. So for the Jewish Christians, there was an easy way out to avoid persecution. Deny Jesus Christ and go back to being a Jew, and then they were completely safe. So that is why this book was written. That's why it's called Hebrews, because it was written to the Christians from a Jewish background, who were the Hebrews. And it was really written as an encouragement to them to not give up on Jesus Christ, and to really lay out why they should not give up on Jesus. And the way that the author did it, or the way that the 
yes, sorry, the way that the author did it was really to focus on Jesus Christ. And the, the book is really all about the supremacy of Christ as one who is better, as one who is superior to any other. Uh, whether that be angels, Moses, sacrifices, uh, whatever. And um, if you just look at the two words, better and superior, the word better is used in the New Testament 41 times, and 11 of those are in Hebrews, that's a quarter. And it's even more striking with the word superior. That's used seven times in the New Testament, this is the NIV, and five of those are in Hebrews. And the writer wants to encourage his readers not to give up on Jesus Christ, And he does this by painting a a great picture of Christ as the better way. And that's why we've called our sermon, oh, we've moved on, um, The Better Way. Um, And the author's motivation is really that as his readers, when they really get hold of who Jesus is, um, when they realize his glory, his might, his power, when they realize all that Jesus has done for them, what his salvation means for them, that then that would help them to persevere, to resist that temptation, to give up on Jesus. And that's why we're going to be looking at the book as well, because it's so that we can see who Jesus is and and as well be encouraged to persevere and not give up on our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this morning I'm going to be looking at the first four verses of chapter one. And if you want to turn in your Bible, you can follow it, or I'm just going to read it out. Okay. And then the writer starts, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. I'm just going to pray before I read. Father God, I just want to pray that most of all this morning, that you, Lord Jesus, will be lifted up. With a passage like this, Lord, I feel, you know, I'm not sure I can give it the honour, the attention that it deserves. Because when we're looking at truths like how great you are, Lord Jesus, words can run out. Human understanding can give up. But Lord, I pray that your spirit will come and just remind us this morning about Jesus, about who you are, what what you've done. And just let that change us. Let that change us so we walk out of here different. Not because I have said things that, have helped people, but actually we've met with you, Lord Jesus. May we meet with you this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. I found it quite helpful, actually. The New International Version of the Bible uh, titles this section, God's Final Word, His Son. And um, I think what, what happens is the writer of this letter starts with what is the most important fact of what God has revealed to us. That God has spoken to us, that God has spoken to ordinary men and women like us. And he's done this in two ways. One, through his word in the Bible, what they call the prophets. And then finally, through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's a very interesting contrast here between the 
incomplete nature of what was brought by the prophets, that it had to be brought at many times and in various ways. And then this final complete revelation of Jesus, as in what the writer calls these last days, which is really where we are now. And uh, Jesus Christ came. He didn't come to break with the past, with the spiritual inheritance of the Jews, but to actually fulfill all that the scriptures had promised and pointed towards. And until Jesus, the revelation of the Old Testament is incomplete. Um, Until the coming of Jesus, God had to speak through the prophets in many ways and at lots of different times. But now with Jesus, he speaks once. And in a sense, God never has to speak to man again. Although he does. And um, you can just look at some of the examples here. The prophet Ezekiel portrays the glory of God. Um, But as we read in our passage, Jesus is the glory of God personified. The prophet Isaiah looks at the nature of God, looks at his holiness, his righteousness, and his mercy. But Jesus was all of this in who he was. And then you have the prophet Jeremiah who talked about the power of God. But Jesus actually demonstrated the power of God at work. And um, you know, one of Jesus' last words was, it is finished. As he sat on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that summed up that after Jesus... There's that sense that nothing else is required. That Jesus is God's final word, who's superior in every way. And I'm going to look at that, in first of all, in who he's always been, then in what he always is, and then finally in something that Jesus did just once, but that never, be, that never had to be repeated again. So we're going to start by looking at three truths about Jesus that confirm that Jesus is the superior one because of what he He is. And the first one is his divinity. As the writer calls him, the son, God's son. Because Jesus was not just a good man, as some people would say he was. He wasn't just a great teacher, although he was. He taught with authority. He wasn't even just an inspirational leader that got people going. No, he was and is God. And that made him superior to anyone else. Even the angels that we read about at the end of the passage. And you've only got to read through the Gospels to realize that Jesus claimed that for himself. He doesn't leave us in a position where we can just say he's an ordinary bloke. He either was who he said he was, God's son, or he wasn't. And I've just given you some verses, John 3, 10 to 18, where Jesus really just lays it out that he is God's son. And then also, Jesus was God's heir. And uh, we can go back to Psalm 2 and verse 8. And uh, the father says to the son, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You see, Jesus was promised the rule of the whole earth. And um, Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11. One of my favorite verses in the Bible where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow or should bow, sorry, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we've got this amazing picture that one day, all of humanity that's on the earth, all the angels in heaven, and then all of Satan and his minions that's under the earth will acknowledge him as Lord. Some willingly, because they recognize his lordship, and some very unwillingly, but they still have to recognize it. 
And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus won't just inherit the earth, but actually the whole of creation as he has promised all things. And then finally, really wrapped up as well in this, the writer talks about how Jesus was creator and how he played an active part in the creation of the universe. And that's linked with the idea of his inheritance as well. The theologian Jay Moffat says that what the son was to possess, he had been instrumental in making. And uh, John also talks about this in his gospel in John 1, 2 to 3, where he says that the word, that was Jesus, was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made. With him, nothing was made that had not been made. And uh, for the Jewish Christians, this was a real encouragement to not give up. And they were, they were undergoing really serious persecution. People were dying. And, uh, and it's the same for us in the things that we face in life, the difficulties that we face because we follow Jesus. Because when we realize who Jesus is, that he's God's son, that he is God's heir, who one day will be Lord of everything, and also his involvement in creation. You know, he's responsible for the very existence of this world that we live in. And when you realize that the man whose hand shaped the universe, who made those, I was looking a couple of weeks ago at um, one of these photography competitions, astronomy things, and they they were showing um, these fantastic images, which we've only just beginning, because our telescopes have got more powerful, we can actually see that God made this incredible, huge world with billions of galaxies. And also these incredible um, subatomic particles and the way it all works and the way it all fits together. That this Jesus is holding them and holding us in the palm of his hands. And it just helps to change your perspective that suddenly the things that seem so difficult, so important, there they are, quite small, and there's Jesus up there. That's how big he is. That's how great he is. Okay. And then we're going to look at some of the things, three things that, Je- that Jesus still does and uh, that he just is. And, um, and I'm going to start with one about the Jesus being God's glory in human form. And for the Jews, the glory of God meant something very definite, very specific, something they were very familiar with. And it was all about a visible and outward expression of the glory of God the majestic presence of God. And it would have reminded them of the time when they came out of Egypt and they camped at Mount Sinai and the glory of God came upon the mountain. And because God was there, they could not even go on the mountain. They would die because he was there. And there's that great, awesome sense of God being with them. And then as they moved through the desert, the glory of God came in the temple and they knew God was there. And Moses would come out with his face shining, reflecting the glory of God having been there. And um, in the time of Judges, when the Israelites' life got, when they, as a nation, they started getting in a mess. And the Ark of the Covenant, that sense of the presence of God, went, went away and went into the Philistine land. They actually lamented and said, look, the glory has departed. The glory of God has gone. So to them, it meant something about God being with them. And then Jesus, when there was this, this kind of this curtain opening for the disciples, as Peter, John and James went up on a mountain, what they call the transfiguration with Jesus. And suddenly 
they realize just who he was and they get a glimpse of God in his true glory. Matthew 17, verse 2. As Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes came, became like the white, as white as the light. And then at the beginning of John's revelation where he meets with the resurrected Jesus and then he, suddenly he sees something, this picture of, uh, of Jesus in Revelation 1, 13 to 16. As it says, and among the lampstand was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It's an amazing picture, isn't it, of, of, uh, of the glory of Jesus Christ. So we have Jesus as the glory of God in human form. And then the writer moves on and looks at how Jesus was shown as God revealed. As, it, as he talks about Jesus being the exact representation of God. And um, the word here, the Greek word, you did, um, I'm not that clever, but I've read it up in a commentary, tells you that the word is, is like a stamp. And it's like a, a stamp that would have been made to make a coin where the image of the emperor would have been pressed onto the coin uh, in making sure that every coin had the exact image of the emperor. And you know it was his coin. And in the same way, Jesus is revealed as an exact copy of God. That is, Jesus said of himself in John fourteen seven, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him because Jesus was God and he was the same as the father, an exact representation of God. And by knowing Jesus, we know God. And then there's the last truth about Jesus, about something that he now still does as he looks at the one who sustains the universe, how the universe actually only exists because of Jesus' authoritative word because of what he says. And um, Paul talks about this in Colossians 1, verse 17, where he says, in him, that's Jesus, all things hold together. And again, these truths are a great comfort and encouragement for the Jewish Christians, and it should be for us as well. You know, that Jesus is the glory of God, personified. That Jesus reveals God, that he is God. That as he knows him, and as he reveals God, we can have a relationship with God. And he's the very sustainer of existence. That he's in control. That nothing happens without him saying it will happen. And um, it just, again, it just makes the issues that we face in this life seem very small when we realize who Jesus is. But he's kept the best to last. As we move on, as we look at something that Jesus only did once but actually changes everything. And uh, this is all about Jesus being God's unique and complete sacrifice. Because everything else we've looked at is always true, or something that, that Jesus has always done. But this is something that Jesus just did once, as he talks about how Jesus had provided purification for sins, and uh, how it's a finished work. And this is one of the big themes of Hebrews. And uh, I've just mentioned Hebrews 10, verse 10, as a, as a quote on that. But actually, this is something that the book really talks about. 
And um, there's this image, isn't there, about how Jesus could sit down. That Jesus didn't have to be standing anymore because it was done. It was finished. And um, this purification of sins is all about how Jesus on the cross became a perfect sacrifice. That once and for all took away the sin of all who would believe in him and removed the curse of sin, death and separation from God. And the Jewish Christians who the letter were actually written to would have been very familiar with this, with this system of animal sacrifice that was set up to deal with sin, where the blood of a dead animal was the price paid to deal with their sin and to remove the separation from God that sin caused. But there was a problem with it because it only worked for a little while and it didn't, and it didn't work properly and it had to be done again and again and again. And this is something that you'll be hearing about a bit more in Hebrews as we move in. And, um, but the difference was with Jesus. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, because of who he was, because he was fully God, and also because he was a fully sinless man, he completely paid the price of sin. And the sacrifice didn't have to be made again and again and again. That was it. Once. Done. Completely. And uh, that means that anyone who believes in Jesus can now enjoy eternal life. And there's a security and there's a confidence as we know that our sin is taken away and we no longer enjoy that separation of relationship with God. And, um, and that is the best and strongest reason why the writer is saying, don't give up on Jesus. What are you going to lose out on? What are you missing out on? And um, yes, by giving up on Jesus, they could save themselves from that persecution and suffering that they were facing. But they would lose a lot more, wouldn't they? They would lose the rewards of what Jesus did for them on the cross. And maybe we're not suffering persecution. Maybe it's different for us. But actually, it's very easy sometimes, isn't it, to say, I just can't be bothered anymore. I'm going to, you know, it's just too hard to follow Jesus. And, you know, I think we all go through times like that. But actually, when we look at what he's done for us and what we're looking forward to, then suddenly... It is possible to keep going, not because we've got the will to do it, not because we can sort of be strong enough to do it, but because we have a confidence, security, in first of all, in who Jesus is, but most of all, in what he did for us. That his sacrifice saved us once and for all, and that's it. And we've got an amazing life to look forward to him, forward to with him as well, when all that will, sit, will just fade away. And, uh, you know, when Jesus comes back in his glory, it will all seem worth it. All the hassle, all the, all the things that make it hard for us to follow Jesus. So that's what this book's written for. And as, we, as we're going to be preaching in the next few, few weeks, this term, next term, and the term after, that's what this book's all about. Let's keep going because of Jesus and who he is. Okay. Now we've looked in these four short verses, and I've been really quick because we're trying to keep our sermons nice and short, why Jesus is superior. And I just want to look at three practical things that we can do, our responses to the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the better way. And um, what I've done is I've put it in a reverse ABC, which actually goes to CBA. Does anyone work that one out? And um, 
The reason I've put them in that order is it's kind of the order that we do them. But actually, the last one is the most important, and you'll see why when we get there. And um, our first response is something that a lot of us have already done, but we kind of already do. Uh, And Ben talked about it last week, and I like the way he put it, actually. It's about being, when we come to Jesus, about being a Christ follower. I think the problem with the word Christian is it can mean a lot of things to different people. But I think the, the term Christ follower tells you exactly what we're doing. We're following Jesus Christ. What we also might call a disciple. You see, because if all of this stuff that I've been talking about is true, if Jesus is really God's son, if he really is God's final word, if he is the creator who keeps everything going, if he truly reveals God the Father, then logically, what's the point of building our life on anything else but following Jesus? And if Jesus is all these verses tell us, then he deserves our total and complete allegiance. And really to ignore him and to build our lives on anything else is foolishness, isn't it? And, um, and if it's really true that Jesus has purified us from our sins, that his once and only sacrifice on the cross has sorted out the issue of our separation from God and means that we can enjoy eternal life with God the Father now instead of death, then what other choice do we have to make? It seems really obvious, doesn't it? And I don't know if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't made that choice, but I would, I would want to encourage you to think about making that choice. And um, one of the ways we can do that, and I'm also talking to all of us here, is we've got a Just Looking course in a couple of weeks. And I would encourage you, it's a great opportunity for those who maybe are not sure, or your friends who are not sure about Jesus, but are kind of interested. This is one way just to bring some truths about Jesus Christ and uh, get them started on that journey of coming to Jesus. But I want to talk to us as well of those of us who are already Christ followers, because we don't just make a decision to follow Jesus. We also have to keep doing it, don't we? We also have to keep following Jesus. And um, it's tricky because things get in the way. Other things become more important than Jesus Christ. And um, I was reflecting on this. I've, I've been a Christian for... Ooh, something like 38 years. It's a long time, isn't it? And, um, but I've looked at my life, and actually, you know, at times, I've let other things become more important than Jesus Christ. And, um, and then, strangely enough, wondered why my life seems to be going nowhere. That's another preach. But, um, and I, you know, I couldn't stand up here and say that I always 100% live for Jesus Christ all of the time. Um, perhaps all I can say is a bit more than I did yesterday or a bit more than I did a year ago, hopefully. And uh, I was very encouraged by something Ben shared about William Carey, how that great man of God said, don't say anything about me, but just that I'm a plodder. And sometimes maybe we feel like that in our walk with Jesus. We're just plodders. We're just step by step letting Jesus be that little bit more Lord of our life. And that's okay. And, uh, but I think it's good to ask that question, actually, every now and then and say, am I letting anything else get between me and Jesus Christ? Because actually, when we realize who he is, we don't have a choice. He's got to be number one, hasn't he? So we come to Jesus. And then we need to believe in Jesus. That's my B. And we need to exercise faith. 
not just believing in our heads that what Jesus says is true, but actually living like it's true. That's the hard bit, isn't it? And um, I, I love the song uh, that Matt Regman wrote, which is We Could Change the World, which is in his 10,000 Reasons album. And it starts with the words, could we? And then he lists some things that will change our lives if we actually live as if they're true. Like the fact that his grace is stronger than our faults and failures. Or that his love is deeper than we can imagine. Or that Jesus' name is higher than any other. Or that his ways are the best. And then the song moves on. They proclaim, as he sings, he proclaims that these are true. And then he says, yes, we're going to live like that. And that when we do and we can, we can change the world. It really inspires me. It's a great song. And um, yeah, it's a challenge to believe in Jesus and put that belief into practice. And I've only got to look at my own life and say, you know, in some ways, yes, I do live like Jesus. What Jesus says about himself is true. But in some ways, I don't. And um, it frustrates me. I find it difficult to, uh, to cope with that. And I, I was thinking about that, and I thought, what really helps me to change? And obviously, there's the, the top answer is it's the Holy Spirit at work in me. I couldn't even believe in Jesus if the Holy Spirit hadn't come in, broke into my life and changed me. And um, a lot of steps that I will take in my life that are good will be because of the Holy Spirit working in me. But I thought, practically, what is it that actually helps me? And it's other Christians. It's the spurring of other people who in some way or another kind of like provoke me or challenge me in their faith. And, um, and I, I think the, I kind of what I got out of that was, is if you are struggling or if you find, you know, it's difficult to believe what Jesus said is true, look for someone who's actually a little bit ahead of you in that, in a particular area, whether that be healing, whether that be in sharing your faith with your friends, and get alongside them and be encouraged by them. And um, so I think it's important, isn't it, that we must believe in Jesus, but it, it's got to be practical. And let's look to one another, to encourage one another and spur one another on. Because I think so many times I would have kind of given up, but I've had a good friend who's just come alongside me and just maybe challenged me, or maybe just by who they are, they've just helped me to persevere and believe in Jesus. But now I'm going to move on to what I think is the most important thing we do. When we realise who Jesus is, and that is what I've called adore Jesus, just so I can get it in my ABC. But actually what I'm talking about here is worship. And, um, you know, that, those verses I quoted earlier, when John saw the risen Christ, what did he do? What did he do? Anyone know? He fell down on the ground like he was dead because he was overwhelmed by the glory of God. Because he suddenly... I mean, he knew a lot about Jesus. This guy wasn't, you know, it wasn't all new. But in a sense, he just had, it was just brought home to him who Jesus was, his glory, his majesty, his might, his power. And, um, and that's what, that should be our response as well, shouldn't it? Jesus deserves our worship, whether or not we feel like it. And, uh, you know, because of who he is, because he's God's son, because he's the heir of God, because he's creator, because he sustains everything. Um, he deserves it because, he's, because he's, he is God. And because, he's, because of his glory, that he actually reveals the glory of God. And he, and he deserves it because of what he's done for us. I mean, that's got to be the best reason, hasn't it? 
You know, that he came and broke into our lives. You know, the fact that all those years ago in that hall, when someone shared about faith, he broke into my life and I started a journey with him. Didn't quite know what I was getting into at the time, if I'm honest. But, you know, he changed my life. And because of that, he deserves my worship. He deserves my praise. And, um, you know, worship is much bigger than just singing songs. Although that's great. It's much bigger than praying. It's much bigger than praying out his glory. It's in lives given over to him. It's in jobs where we work to the best of our ability. It's in families that we bring up with godly values, proclaiming the truth about Jesus. It's about sharing our faith. It's about all of our lives. Worship is a big thing. And it's something we're going to have to work on for the rest of our lives until we meet with Jesus again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the band to come up. Is that all right, Sam? And um, I wanted to put it into practice. So we've got half an hour where we can actually worship Jesus. So I'm just going to pray and I'm just going to, and then we're just going to worship Jesus and give him the glory that he deserves. So yeah, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for who you are. And Lord, you know, you look at a passage like that and you just begin to get a glimpse of who you are. And I just, I just want to pray for each one of us, perhaps like John. He was suddenly, he saw you in all your glory, all your majesty, all your might. And it changed him. He fell at his feet. Yes, Lord, you lifted him up and you enabled him to, to stand on his feet again. And for some reason you do that with us. Because actually we could just, we could just stay on our feet. We could stay on the ground, but Lord, we come and we worship you. So help us, Lord, to worship you. Help us, Lord, to give you our lives. And Lord, speak to us about what that means. Yeah, challenge us where we need to be challenged, Lord. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But Lord Jesus, now, let us come. Let us worship you. Let us know your grace. Let us know your joy. But most of all, Lord Jesus, let's proclaim the truth about who you are and about what you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.